Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, if you came in after our announcements, we a uh, few things that are going on, but one thing I want to kind of highlight today, uh, in our cafe after our worship service, we'll be having uh, a time of fellowship. So if you're new, we'd love for you to hang out in there. It's a great little space that we've created for, for us to get to know each other. There's going to be a, an auction that's going to go to uh, different services and different goods that are being put up in order to support our short-term missionaries, particularly those who are going to the Dominican Republic. So uh, make your way over there and, and you can uh, see what's going on. We have uh, baked goods, a bake sale, really amazing stuff. Great, great, great things that have been provided. Not store-bought, it's the real deal. Genuine, authentic, uh, good, healthy stuff and not-so-healthy stuff for those of you who are of that persuasion. Uh, we're really excited for that. Uh, we love, love, love uh, the opportunity to get to know you guys, but this is what it's all about. We love the real stuff, don't we? The authentic uh, food, because we're so tired of being deceived, aren't we? I'm tired of being deceived. I feel like I've grown up all of my life being deceived by different things. Have you? One of the things, that's why one of the things we value as a culture and as a generation, we prize as one of the virtues of our day is authenticity and being genuine and being real. We love people. They just... Yeah, what do you think about them? I love them. Why do you love them? They just keep it real. We love people who keep it real. People who are authentic, who are genuine. There's no pretense. There's nothing fake about them. We love people like that because that's what we're drawn to, in part because that's what we're supposed to connect with, but also because we've been deceived for much of our lives. When I was growing up, one of the the major uh, brands that were popular amongst people my age was Polo, Ralph Lauren. This is what all the uh, kids who are preppies or kids who wanted to be preppies wore, uh, because it was so expensive to get the genuine Ralph Lauren polo, there are a lot of knockoffs. Like you could go to like China or Asia or some places, or the uh, Latin American, you could get these knockoff polo shirts. They would say something like pulled or, or bolo or something like that. Uh, and so we would wear things like this, and sometimes we would get one that actually said polo, but we wouldn't know if it was a real deal or not. And so we'd ask our family. I remember one time I had a polo shirt that somebody gave me, and I thought it was real, and so I was kind of sporting it at church. And this one, like, older guy came up, and he looked at something on my shirt. He's like, this is fake, and he walked away. I said, like, what do you mean it's fake? He said, real polo, uh, the, the, the buttons are cross-stitched, like a cross, not like parallel. He said, yours are parallel stitch, and on a real polo, the horse has four legs. You can see all four legs. Yours only has two legs, so it's a fake polo. I was like, no, I don't want a fake. I want the real thing. I want the real deal. And I was so disappointed because we are a people who are drawn to that which is authentic and true and real. That's why we love Kellogg's Fruit Loops, don't we? But we're not real big fans of Fruit Hoops, which they sell in some other stores like the dollar store. We love getting Mountain Dew, but we're not real big fans of Kroger's Mountain Mist. (laughs) Dr. Pepper is the real deal, but Dr. Thunder, not so much. We're drawn to things that are real because that's what we want. We've grown up being deceived by whether it's a promising politician or a Photoshop picture from people to products, whatever it might be, we have been deceived and we long for the things that are real. So the question we always ask is, is it real? Is it authentic? Is it genuine? And if these things are true of people and of politics and of products and of all kinds of things like that, then it is absolutely imperative if faith is the only way to have a relationship with God and to have eternity with Him, then it is absolutely imperative that we ask that question of our faith. How do you know that your faith is real? How do you know that your faith is authentic? How do you know that your faith is genuine? I want to talk about that today. Hebrews chapter 11 Verses 17 through 19, we've been going through the hall of faith, and this has been really kind of, not kind of, it's been really challenging me in a lot of different ways to look at my life, to look at my faith, to look at what I believe, to look at my perception of what Christianity is, to look at my understanding of what Christianity is, and to ask myself, is this a product of my American upbringing, or is this really a product, my faith really a product of a genuine and deep, authentic, biblical spirituality? And I want to ask, invite us to ask that question as well. What is genuine faith? Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. This is God's word. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac 
that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is God's word. Uh, The original true story of Abraham is written in Genesis chapter 22. We'll kind of talk about it and try and unpack a little bit about it. But I just want to bring out two thoughts here as it relates to faith and the authenticity of faith and particularly the simple idea of the testing of our faith. Here's the first thing. Faith must be tested in order for it to be proven. Faith must be tested in order for it to be proven. First thing it says, by faith Abraham when God tested him. Genesis 22.1 says the same thing. God tested Abraham. Whether you like it or not, Tests and the, just the, that, that whole understanding, that whole concept of a test is crucial to our way of life. Because unless something is tested, you don't know that thing is, is really as strong or as good, as, as true or as, as real as you think it might be. That's why when you go to school and you take a test, you don't know how much you know a subject until that gets tested. Very simple idea. Same thing when it comes to driving. You might think you're an excellent driver. Like Rain Man, you remember that movie Rain Man? Dustin Hoffman, he's an autistic guy. He says, I'm an excellent driver, I'm an excellent driver. You don't know that you're an excellent driver until you take that driving test. You might think you know how to drive. You might have been told that you know how to drive. But unless you sit behind the wheel and you take that driving test, you don't really know how well you can drive. Relationships need to be tested in order for you to know how strong they are. If there's a relationship where there's no hardship, no difficulty, no conflict, then probably one of two things. You're dating, married to a robot, or two, your faith has just not, or your relationship has not gotten to a place where you think it can be tested. But unless that, that, that relationship is tested through adversity, through distance, through time, whatever it might be, you never know how strong that relationship really is. And we may not like taking tests, but tests are absolutely and utterly essential to life on planet Earth. As much as uh, the lawyer, the doctor, dreads taking the LSAT, the MCAT, you as a patient, you as a client would never hire a professional unless they had taken that test because you need to know that if you're going to hire this person for their services, you need to know that what, they've, uh, what they are offering to you has been tested and has been proved. You may not like it, but the reality of life is that everything worth anything must be tested in order for it to be proved. And so here in verse 17, God says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. So again, Genesis 22 tells us this this, this true story of Abraham. We heard a little bit about him two weeks ago. But here's the deal about Abraham. He was called to leave everything that he knew behind, his posh upbringing, his country, his people, his father's household, to leave everything behind with his family and then to go to a place where God said, I'll show you, just keep walking until I say stop. And so Abraham went, and every step of the journey, he was being tested. And at a certain point, God said, when Abraham was 75 years old, okay, when he was 75 years old, God said, listen, Abraham, check this out. I'm going to make you into the father of many nations. In fact, out of your loins and out of Sarah's womb would come somebody that would bear the seed of the promise that out of you guys would come many nations. I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to give you a family, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the shore. And Abraham is like, God, I'm 75 years old. My wife is 65 years old. It says, if you look in in, in verse 12, they are as good as dead as it comes to birthing a child. We're as good as dead, God, and yet you're saying that through us, we're going to be the father and mother of many nations. But this is what God had said. And so every step of his life was a step of faith where he's wondering, is it really true? And so God says, I'm going to do it. 25 years later, God would actually come through. But in that 25-year gap, they're thinking, how is this going to happen? They don't think it's humanly possible. And so what do they do? Abraham sleeps with his wife's maidservant and says, why don't you use her as the birther? Use her as the surrogate, and then a child is going to come forth. And that child would be born. His name was Ishmael. But God said, that's not what I was talking about. I wasn't talking about a maidservant, Hagar. I was talking about Sarah. If you would just trust me. 
I who made the world and spoke it into existence will be able to bring forth a child through you guys. They don't think it's possible. They think it's kind of weird that God would do that. But at the age of 100, when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, God opens the womb and she has a son. And this boy's name is Isaac. The pride and joy, the delight of mom and dad. The promised child. And yet here it says, God called him and he tested him. And he said, Abraham, would you sacrifice your son? Give him up to me. Even though it makes no sense because through him (laughs) the promise was supposed to come. But he's the only child. And if he sacrificed to the altar, how does that make any sense? See, this idea of child sacrifices may not have been real... (laughs) No pun intended, maybe kind of pun intended, but it wasn't real kosher in the biblical times. But in other cultures, okay, in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the idea of child sacrifice was very common. You ever ride, you ever go to Islands Adventure? Anyone go to Islands of Adventure? There's this ride called Dr. Doom's Fearfall in the Marvel Island, right? There's a ride called uh, Dr. Doom's Fearfall. The basic idea, you get strapped into this thing, and then Dr. Doom's like, ah, ha, 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 and then you like shoot up into the air, and you're like, oh my gosh, it gets really scary, and then you fall back down, and, and that's basically, and he's like, now that I've got your fear, I've extracted all the fear out of you, he takes the fear of everyone who's in that ride, and he gains strength so that he can fight and defeat the Fantastic Four, <laughs> That's what this ride is all about. And where do they get that idea? I don't know if they get it from the ancient Near East, but that was the idea of ancient Near Eastern child sacrifices. The so-called gods of the Babylonian and the other, other cultures said, hey, you know what? We're needy. We're not strong enough. And they would never admit to that, but they, we're not strong enough. Therefore, we need you to offer a child. And when the blood of that child is offered to us, we get stronger so that we can then answer the prayers that you have. So here's a fertility God, so-called. We pray to this fertility God because we really want a baby. Here's what you got to do. You got to take an animal, you got to take a human, you got to sacrifice that human. When we drink the blood of that human, we get strong so we can give you the babies that you ask for. That's the way it worked in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. Biblical culture was different because God didn't need a human sacrifice. So in the mind of someone like Abraham, the idea of sacrificing his child made complete sense to him, but it didn't make sense that God would ask for it. Why? Because God had said things like in Genesis 9, 6, don't shed the blood of another person, right? Because that blood will be avenged, right? After the time of Noah. And so because he knew God doesn't need that, but it doesn't make any, it doesn't seem to make any sense. And so here, Abraham faces the test of, of his life. Will he follow God? There's a <clears throat> social psychologist, social scientist, I forget <laughs> his name slips in my mind right now, but he says each of us have three kinds of beliefs. Okay, three kinds of beliefs. There's a public belief. This is what we say we believe. There's a private belief. This is what we think we believe. And then there's a core belief. Okay, this is what we really believe. How do you know the difference between a private belief and a core belief. The only way you can tell what you really believe deep in your heart of hearts is by the way you live and by the choices that you make. And we might think, I believe in Jesus, that he's worth everything to me. We could even sing those songs and we could think that this is my private belief. But unless that belief is put into action and we live out that belief, we don't really believe that thing to be true. Because the only thing we really believe, the core belief in every human being, is shown in how we live life. And so here's Abraham. This test comes to him. And the point and the purpose, right? God's intent was never (laughs) for Abraham to really kill his son Isaac. That's why when he was about to do it, he says, stop. The whole point, right? This is a test, and you can almost hear when, when Abraham is about to slay his son, God says, stop. And he says, this has been a test of the emergency faith system. This is only a test. Because unless our faith is put to the test, it can never be proved. And so God is saying, will you bring your Isaac before me? See, testing is important. And 
I, I want to help us to understand because sometimes we think God wants to, he's this cosmic killer of our joy and of our plans and of our pleasure and of all the things that we desire, but that's not the heart of God. We have a, we have a harvester here who's a third grade teacher at a Title I school. So two things that that means. Third grade is the first year that the Florida Standard Assessment Test is given. Okay? So it's a standardized test, and for a lot of people, this can be very stressful. Title I school means that it's underprivileged and under-resourced. So what that means is these children, you know, basic things that you and I take for granted, things like have your pencils sharpened, bring pencils, bring all of these things, have your parents sign off on these forms. They don't have a lot of those things. These children don't. And so during this time where the Florida standards were about to be given, this one teacher said, uh, sent a message out to some of the ladies of Harvest of our church and said, my children in this Title I school are taking this test and they are so stressed out. They're scared because it's the first time they've ever taken it and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to expect. And so this teacher said, here's what I'm asking. Would you just pray for these children? Would you pray for my students? Because they don't get this kind of support at home. Most of them don't. Simple things like everyone knows that if you want to do well on a test, you ought to eat a good breakfast before you take that exam. But most of these kids don't have the privileges or the resources to be able to eat a breakfast. Would you pray for them? And, and so she kind of rallied the troops and different sisters of Harvest either gave money or did different things on two days of testing. They brought these Chick-fil-A uh, meals in for the kids. Some of them probably the first time they've eaten at Chick-fil-A. Bring them in so the kids could eat them. Made goodie bags and encouragement packs to let these kids know you're not alone. You're not alone that there are people who love you, there are people who care for you, there are people who will stand for you, there are people who give, there are people, there are people who will sacrifice in order to help you to be able to do your best on this test. Because that's the heart of any teacher who gives a test. There's no delight in the heart of a teacher to see their child fail the test. The heart of the teacher is, I want my students to pass. And that's the heart of our God also. Every desire of God's heart is not to prove us wrong, but is to prove our faith strong. That's why he gives us the test of our faith. That's what God desires. So we come in here every Sunday, and this is where we learn the lessons of life. And then as you go out on Sunday afternoon, that's where you begin doing your homework. And every week you get quizzes that show up in life, and every now and then there are tests that come up. And your faith is put to the test. And God's desire is not that you would fail the test, but that you would pass. That's God's desire. And so when you face challenges, when you face hardship, the question that God is asking is, is your faith real? Is this not just a public or private belief, but is this a core belief in your heart of hearts? Because that's the desire of God's heart, for you to pass the exam so that your faith would be proven to be genuine. The problem is here in America, we don't like these tests. Because quite frankly, you, well, maybe not you, but I like to remain comfortable. And if I remain comfortable, then my faith will never be challenged and I'll never know what I really have. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Daniel and I went out to Seattle, pastor's conference, right? So I was out there and during one of the sessions, uh, during the first session, uh, one of my friends walked in. Right? We're not like really tight, but... Uh, we, we're friends. I, I've known him for about six years. I've spoken at his church about three different times, tw just once for a regular uh, worship event, and then and twice I spoke at a revival at his church. And so I'd known him. We, we'd, have, we'd have, you know, we've got a relationship and, and, and things. And, and so, he, interestingly, he walked in, and he sat two seats away from me, and he sat down. He didn't say hi to me or anything, didn't acknowledge me, so I thought it was kind of weird. And so I was thinking, man, that's kind of strange. And, and so as we we're uh, going through the conference that, that first night, that, that first session ended, and so I walked up to him, I was like, uh, we'll call him John. I said, hey, John, what's going on? And he kind of looked at me, and, and something was, was, was weird. And he's like, I'm sorry, uh, who are you? And I, I, I was kind of taken aback, and I said, hey, John, it's, it's D.L., He's like, oh, Pastor D.L., I'm, I'm so sorry. So sorry. He said, you, I guess you haven't heard, but I am suffering from a degenerative 
disorder, and I'm blind. Like, I can't see anything anymore. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, dude, I am so sorry. I, I, I didn't know. Like, how are, I mean, what do you say? I, I mean, so I said, how are you doing? It's like, you know, a, a, as a pastor, my eyes are the one thing that I have. I mean, that's, that's I, don't, I may not have much, but if I can see, I can do stuff. I can read, it's like, but I can't, I can't see anything anymore. That now I can't read books to prepare for my sermons. I listen to audio books. And I listen to all of that and I have to internalize it and I have to memorize all of the sermons that I have to preach. No real use of writing anything down if I can't look at it to read it. It's like, oh my goodness. That must be so. And I, you know, I asked about his wife and his kids. I've, I've come to know them. And I was like, man, is that, that must be like the hardest thing. He's like, yeah, you know what? But... <coughs> Here's the thing, because of this, I feel like I really understand what Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when he said, in my weakness, God's power will be made perfect. He said, you know me, I used to be so proud, I used to be so prideful, I used to treat people so badly, but now like God has really been humbling me. And all I have, man, it's like we sing, all I have is Christ. That's all I have. And he said, but here's the thing, man. Here's the thing that's crazy. Like God has been blessing our church like mad. Like more and more people are coming. In fact, we've got new staff who are coming from, he's in one part of the West Coast, he said, from another state, like people are coming to serve on our staff and they're doing it for free. They're not taking any pay from it. He said, all of these things are happening. He said, there's no way there's no way that this could have happened if I was still the same old, prideful, dependent on myself, me. And then he said, I just, man, whenever you remember me, can you just pray for me? Like pray that I could just remain in this place of humility and, and in grace, depending upon the Lord in faith. And my brother is being put to the test his faith is being put to the test. The one thing that he needed, the one thing that he could hold on to and say, this is what I can offer to God, has been taken away from him. And so all he has is Christ. And in the test of faith, I have to say that my friend is passing that test with flying colors because he's clinging to God and saying, my faith is being proven and shown in the furnace of affliction. Guys, if our faith is not tested, it cannot be proved. And so we may not need to ask for the hardship in life to come, but can I ask you, when the hardships come, when the testing comes, don't run from it. Right? Embrace it. Because unless that faith is tested, it can never be proved to be true. It's the first thing we see, it must be tested. Second thing, the hardest tests come when our faith becomes costly. Okay, the hardest tests of life are when our faith becomes costly. It says, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Why was this so costly for him? Because one, it was his only son. Yeah, Granted, there was Ishmael, and granted, there would come others later. But he's highlighting the fact that this was the prize of his life. His one and only son. Not only that, it was through Isaac that your offspring would be reckoned. It was through, the promise, it was through Isaac that the promise's fulfillment would come to pass. And so here's what makes it so hard, that the promise and the command are coming at complete conflict with one another. Saying, if I obey the command then it seems like the promise that God had given to me is going to be nullified. So it made no logical sense for him to sacrifice his one and only son. But you see, these are where the tests of faith really come in. Will we give God the one thing in life that is most important to us? 
Naked we come into the world, naked we will leave, and along the way God gives us gifts in order that we might see his goodness, but he calls for us to let them go in order that we might hold on to him, that he might be our all in all. That we might not fall in love with a gift more than we love the giver. And when that temptation comes in our hearts, God will oftentimes say, will you give that up so that you can grab a hold of me? Because you see, you can't reach out for me because your hands are already full with the things that you've been given by me. And so God goes to Isaac. It's very interesting, actually. In Genesis 22, uh, you, can, you can trust that I'm reading this, this, this properly, but it's really funny. In Genesis 22, verse 2, okay, it says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. It says, take your son. I can imagine this conversation. God says to Abraham, take your son. Abraham's like, which one? (laughs) Your only son. Well, technically I had Ishmael first. At one point he was my only son. The one whom you love. Well, God, I don't, want, I don't want to play favorites. I love both of them. And then he says, Isaac, in order to make it crystal clear, he just, just, just drills that into him. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac. Because Abraham knew who God was asking for. But like us, we try to rationalize that away. Delayed obedience is the same thing as disobedience until we get to the point of obedience, isn't it? So he says, are you sure, God, that's the one that you want? What about the promise? See, the greatest test of faith is when God comes to us and asks us to offer back to him what he's given to us, an offering that actually costs something. Will you give that to the Lord God? He doesn't come to us and say, I want your leftover. I want your second best. He comes to us and he says, I want the very best that you have. He doesn't ask for your Ishmael. He asks for your Isaac. What is the Isaac in your life? What's the Isaac in your life? That one thing that you say, God, you can have everything, but not Isaac. What is Isaac in your life? Is it your uh, sterling reputation amongst the people of God? Is it that relationship that has meant so much to you, that's helped you in a worldly sense to get through the challenging places of your life? but perhaps you feel like it's getting in the way of your relationship with God, and God feels the same way. Is it, maybe like Isaac, it's a child or children or an ideal picture of what your future ought to look like. This child that means more to you than God himself to the point where if it came to the point where I've got to go to my child's this or that or come to the worship of God, a very difficult choice that we need to make. God doesn't ask for our Ishmaels. He asks for our Isaac. And when we say, God, I give you everything. I give you everything that includes Isaac. And so here, we say, God, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. He says, okay, Let me start taking that which you will surrender to me. Let's start with your time. Okay, God, I've got a lot of time. I watch eight hours of Netflix a day. I watch six hours of Korean drama. I don't sleep because I'm watching these things. All I'm doing is playing video games anyway. I'll give you my time. So God says, I want you to serve in this way. Okay, I think I could do that. After all, you know, you're worth it, God. All to you, I surrender. And so you start getting involved in this kind of a ministry, and all of a sudden you realize, man, it's taking a little bit longer more time than I thought. Now I'm not able to watch an entire season in two nights. It's actually taking me three nights, and I'm getting behind on some of my other shows. But I did it for the sake of God, so I'll give you my time. And then God says, you surrendered everything to me. What about your money? And he begins to put on your heart the needs of people around you. 
begin to get all these missionary support letters. Well, God, why am I getting all these letters? Last year, nobody gave me any letters. Now I've got like 16 of them. Why does all these people want me to support them on missions? Well, because you said, all to Jesus, I surrender. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so you start giving out these checks and writing these mission support out to people. And, man, this is not too bad. Right? It's hard, yeah, but I gave it all to God. All to Jesus, I surrender. And he says, okay, let's get a little bit closer to home. What about your reputation? So your friends start making fun of you, unjustly accusing you of things that you've done. They start gossiping you about you, <laughs> talking behind your back, saying things that are just flat out not true about you. You start hearing people murmur behind your back, saying you're weird, saying you're this, saying you're that, these things, and, and you can almost feel the gaze of people as you walk around. Like, man, what's going on? And as you spend time praying to the Lord, you hear the voice of God saying, you gave me everything, even your reputation. You're like, God, this hurts. It's painful. It's difficult. God says, I'm making you into the man, the woman of God that I want you to be. And he says, let's now go for the jugular. One by one, he asks for everything you have ever counted dear. Your job, your career, your future, your 20s, your 30s, your life. And then he says, now, as your faith is growing, I want your Isaac. I want your Isaac. He says, will you give him, give her, give that, give this to me? You said you would. But here, it's being put to the test. Is it really all to Jesus I surrender? Or is it some to Jesus I surrender, some to you I freely give? God doesn't ask for Ishmael. He asks for Isaac. How do we do this? I think the amazing thing, the amazing thing, it says in verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. He understood something that maybe we don't always understand. A lot of times we think that the sacrifice of the idols that keep us from seeking God with all of our heart is merely a sacrifice. But everything about Abraham's testing of faith made it clear to him and clear to us that all of this was shrouded under a very clear and real picture. And the clearest vision of all was not the worthiness of his son, but the worthiness of God. Genesis 22 makes it absolutely, utterly, unmistakably clear that everything about this three-day journey was an act of worship. Abraham, when he's about to sacrifice his son, what does that mean? Here's what it means means he walked for three days with his son. In fact, it says he woke up early in the morning to take this trip. You think he woke up that early in the morning because he was so, I can't wait to sacrifice my son. If I understand Abraham, if I understand human nature, if Abraham was a human like you and me, I would, I, the reason I think he woke up early was because he couldn't sleep at night, thinking he had to offer that one and only on the altar of love to God. Early in the morning, he gets up, he gets the wood, he gets all of the things necessary for the fire. He gets Isaac, and Isaac says, Dad, everything's here for the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Little does he know that in Abraham's heart of hearts, Isaac is the sacrifice. So for three days, like three days, he's walking with the son that he knows in his mind he's going to have to offer up when he gets to the place God shows him. What do you think that conversation, that walk is like for the son and the dad? Knowing that he's loving him and, and wanting to make the most of his time only to slit his throat like they did the other sacrifices so that the blood of the lamb bleeds out, sprawled out on the altar, wood set on fire, and his son burned up as an offering acceptable to the God. That's what it meant. 
to offer his son. And yet, when he goes with his servant, says, you stay here, my child and I, we're going to go and we're going to worship God. And then he says, and then we will come back. Is that crazy? Somehow, Abraham understood that even if I do this, God says here, God could raise the dead. Didn't make sense to him. But all he knew, I don't need answers. I don't need to figure out even. Hey, just because I don't have a way that this makes any sense doesn't mean that there's no answer for it. How did he know? Verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Verse 12, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead. Do you think there might have been something in it where in the midst of worship, Abraham began to realize, you know what? I was as good as dead. Sarah was as good as dead, but God brought life out of that. And if Isaac is as good as dead, surely he can bring life out of that. See, the only way we can do this is if we understand that it's all about worship, not merely about sacrifice. When all we're thinking about, all oh, that, the sacrifice, all I have to give to him, then it, does, it just becomes like I'm giving this away, I'm throwing this away. But when it becomes a language of worship, you begin to realize, holy cow, I'm not just throwing this away. This is my act of worship to God. And it's when we see the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God and we come into this place, then we begin to see when Abraham was about to slit the throat of his son, God said, stop! Because on Mount Moriah, we see what a human would do for the love of God. And then we come into worship and our minds are taken to Calvary where on that mountain, we would see what a God would do for the love of humanity. Where the father, Abraham, was told to stop, God the Father heard no such voice. But his son Jesus laid out on the altar, crucified for our sins. God said to Abraham, now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. How do we, isn't this what we want to know? If I'm going to follow God, I need to know that he's real. I need to know that his love is real. How do you know that his love is real? Not because you feel it. You think Abraham felt for three days that he wanted to offer his son? He didn't. How do you know that the love of God is real? Not because of a flutter of your emotion, because of a conviction that takes us back to Calvary. Because on that cross, we can look and we can say, God, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld from me your son your only son. This is how we know what love is. That he offered his Isaac, his son, his Jesus, his best in order that we might have life. And only when we get into that place of worship can we see. I surrender to Jesus. I'm not just surrendering him to whatever. I'm surrendering him to Jesus. Will you do that when God calls for the Isaacs of your life? The missionary, uh, I'll just end with this. I think this is a humorous, maybe it's not humorous, I think it's a, a poignant illustration of the heart of God and of what it means and what it looks like to follow him. A missionary to uh, New Guinea, I forget which part of New Guinea, his name was Otto something or other. Very famous story where on this island, the villagers lived deep within the jungle I don't know if it's an island, but they lived deep within uh, some place. And he kind of lived in, a, in the main part, of, uh, main part of the village. And he ministered there for years, hoping that people, praying that people would come to know Jesus. But for a long time, nobody did. In that uh, place, he was ministering to cannibals who lived by their own set of rules. And one of the main rules that they lived by was, hey, you could steal. If it's there, you could take it. <laughs> if it's there, you take it. And so as he invited people into his little hut on the village, he would notice that as soon as they left, items would be missing. <laughs> and then when he would go deep into the village in order to minister to these people, he would go into their huts and he would see his stuff there. And he'd be like, dude, this is kind of weird. Like, did you take this from me? They'd say, no, this is ours. And so he said, okay, that's just the way it is. Now, on that island, uh, fresh fruit was prized because they didn't have many fresh fruits. And this missionary, Otto and his wife, they really loved pineapples. 
and they really love pineapples. The natives had tasted pineapples that had been imported, and they loved the taste of pineapples. And that's the one thing that Otto missed the most from his life in America. And because he loved them, he said, I'm going to bring in some pineapple bushes, and I'm going to plant them so that I can have pineapples and eat them fresh. And so he did. The problem is he, didn't know, he had no idea how long they would take for them to ripen. You know how long it takes for a pineapple tree to produce ripe pineapples? It takes three years. Okay, three years. So he plants these bushes in his garden, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. All he wants is fresh pineapples. But when they begin to ripen, he's so excited. Right? This one first year around Christmas time, they were getting ripe. He was so excited. He couldn't wait. He went out on Christmas, and he realized that all the pineapples had gotten jacked. <laughs> it's like, what in the world? The natives had taken all of his pineapples. He said, where are pineapples? He's like, well, they were there. We helped you plant them. So since we planted them, they're ours. He said, I paid you to plant them. He's like, that doesn't make any sense. If we planted them, they're ours. And so they took them. And he got really angry at them. Can you imagine this angry missionary? Just stop stealing my pineapples. And so here's what he said. His wife was a doctor, and she ran a medical clinic. And he said, if you keep stealing my pineapples, we're going to shut down the clinic. They kept on stealing the pineapples. So he shut down the clinic and said, no more medicine for you. And these people would come like coughing and wheezing and bleeding and say, we need medicine, we need medicine. This is not that funny because this is like real people, but some of you are laughing. Heartless. <laughs> so they come, they're like wheezing and hurting and we need medicine, we need medicine bad. He said, stop stealing my pineapples then. He said, no, we're not going to stop stealing them. And so people died, like people died. And so they, they're coming, they're like, oh, our children have died. And he said in those days, like, they didn't, they didn't really care. Like, they didn't really care that their children died. They just wanted to stay alive. They said, we want our medicine. We need our medicine. He said, stop stealing. And after a while, they never said, we're going to stop stealing. But he felt bad. He's like, dude, I'm a missionary. Like, I came to save these people, but they're dying without Jesus because of these dang pineapples. So he said, okay, I'm, we're going to open the clinic again. So he opened up the clinic, gave them their medicine. As soon as they got their medicine, they stole more pineapples, and then they left. He got really upset, and he said, you know what? Uh, there was a store. He ran this, like, little store in the middle of the island that sold things like matches and salt and string, things that the people needed. And that's where they would come, and they would visit him, and they would talk. And he said, you know what? Uh, I can't let these people die. We have to give medical help, but I'm going to shut down the store. He said, you can't shut down the store. We need the stuff in there. He said, no, we're gonna shut I'm going to shut it down because you keep stealing my pineapples. They said, okay, you're going to shut it down. And so they went back, and they figured out what they're going to do without that store. He shut the store down, and he sat there in front of his store that had been shut down, eating these pineapples, and he was loving life. And then he realized, holy cow, look at what I'm doing. Like, people don't, I don't see any of the village people anymore. I'm just sitting here eating pineapples. If all I wanted was pineapples, I'd just go back to America and just eat as many pineapples as I want. And so he said, okay, this is bad. So he opened the store again. And as soon as they, they came back into his area, they started stealing his pineapples again. He was really frustrated. He was really angry about this. He said, you know what? I'm going to get, he, so he got this German shepherd. They'd never seen a German shepherd on that island. They only had these little yappy dogs. And so German shepherd, massive. He brought it in from another place. And so these people saw this German shepherd walking around, and they thought, this, guy, this, is, a, this is an animal. It's like Godzilla to them. They're like, holy cow. But what ended up happening, and they didn't steal his pineapples any longer, but it drove a further wedge between him and the village people. And this went on for seven years. Seven years. Pineapples got jacked. He got angry. Uh, so after his seventh year, he went on sabbatical. He went on home assignment, came to America, and he was at this conference. And the conference was talking about how we need to sacrifice the very best that we have, the thing that we hold dear, the thing that keeps us from living out the call of God in our lives. And immediately God began to speak to his heart. He said, that's your pineapples. Are you kidding me? I pineapples? God said, I want your pineapple trees. So he went back. As soon as he got back, he was in his garden. He was still angry at the people started walking around his pineapple trees, and he started praying. He said, God, these pineapple trees are yours. I give these pineapple trees to you. They're yours. Take them. 
So the villagers came. They knew that he came back, saw that he was there. Said, oh, he's back. Pineapples are ripe, and they started taking the pineapples. After a while, the pineapples looked at Otto, and they said, oh, what is the word? I think it's Watu. That means foreigner. They said, Watu, have you become a Christian? <laughs> he's like, he thought to himself, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've been here for seven years. I've been preaching the gospel to you for seven years, telling you the Bible. What do you mean have I just become a Christian? He said, no, I've, I've been a Christian. Why do you say that? They said, because now when we steal your pineapples, you don't get angry at us. You don't put that big dog on us anymore. What happened to you? And he began to realize, wow, for the first time they're seeing someone who lives out what he was preaching. Someone who lives out the life of honesty, integrity, kindness, gentleness, and gospel lifestyle. And he said, maybe that's why they never put their trust in Christ. He said, I've been a Christian for many years. They said, why don't you get angry anymore? He said, because they're not my pineapples anymore. They said, they're not? Then whose are they? And they looked at each other. They said, did he give it to you? Did he give it to you? Did he give it? They said, no, he didn't give it to me. They said, who did you give it to? Whose are they? He said, when I came back, I gave them to God. And they were puzzled. They said, you mean God doesn't have pineapples where he lives? And he said, I don't know if God has pineapples or not. I just gave them to God. They said, then you know what? We have not been stealing from Watu. We've been stealing from God. That's why our babies are getting sick. That's why when we go hunting, we're not catching any pigs. That's why our women are not producing babies, because we've been stealing from God, and maybe God is angry. We need to stop stealing. And so Otto said, but you can have some now. I want you to eat them because they're becoming too ripe, and if we don't eat them together, then they're going to go rotten. And so together, they enjoyed the bounty. And one by one, people started coming to know Christ until within that series of islands in New Guinea, that became known as the Christian islands. And he said, how much hardship and how much pain could I have saved if I'd given my pineapples to God earlier? What's your pineapple's? What is your Isaac? God is asking for them. Would you give them to him? It's a test of our faith. Let's pray. Let's spend a moment right now just praying to the Lord God. What is your Isaac? What are your pineapples? For some of us, right, God is putting his finger on that thing in our heart. It's not hard to find because it's right there at the center. Think, would you give that up? Would you give that to me? Would you? Let's pray. Spend a minute or so praying. Let's offer that to the Lord God right now. Lord, I need your help. Remember, it's all about worship, seeing God. Because we see God, we can offer to him the Isaacs and the pineapple trees of our lives all to Jesus surrender let's pray for a minute or two was with the pineapple trees when missionary Otto gave it to God. God gave it back to him in abundance with so much more. When God called Abraham to give him Isaac, he gave Isaac back with so much more. When God gave and took away from Job, he restored so much more. It doesn't always work that way. 
But can I tell you that the heart of God is not to rob us of the good things of life in order to give us the bad things. God wants to take from us the bad things and the good things in order that we might have the best thing. Our God is good. He's a loving teacher. Tests us in the school of faith that we might stand and honor the Lord God. We're going to come to this table of grace. Let's pray for a minute. If there's anything we need to repent of and confess before the Lord God, the idols of our hearts, the things that we've put our trust in, the things that we've made more important to us than Jesus. Let's surrender to the Lord. Let's pray for a minute as we prepare our hearts to come to the table of wondrous mercy and grace. Let's pray for another half a minute to a minute. I'll pray for us and we'll continue to worship the Lord God. Father in heaven, thank you that the commands of God really reveal your character. The only reason you tell us to be holy is because you're holy. The reason you tell us to be genuine is because you're genuine. Tell us not to lie because you don't lie. Tell us to be generous because you're generous. You tell us to be kind because you are kind. Tell us to be merciful because you're merciful. You call us to perfection because you are perfect. And though we can't do that, there was one who was for us. And so the reason you ask for the dearest and best is because you gave your one and only the prize of your heart, Jesus Christ, to us. When we see that love, we can respond in love because it's only in being loved by you that we can love you in return. So help us to be faithful so that when our faith is put to the test, it will be proven genuine so that we might honor you and love you with all of our lives. Thank you so much. We love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.